Changing healthcare starts with a dream. Better care, smarter care, and healthier people. Listen weekly as Dr. Gregory Goodman interviews today's most innovative MDs as they transform healthcare and share their journey from white coat to business suit, highlighting lessons learned and golden prescriptions for your success. Join us today and get your doctor-recommended dose of MD Innovation. So welcome to The Modern MD. This is Dr. Greg Goodman, your host. I'm very excited. We've got Dr. Trishan Ponch. He's a primary care physician and Harvard-trained healthcare expert. He is the co-founder and chief medical officer at Wellframe, a healthcare technology company comprised of engineers, clinicians, data scientists, dedicated to reorganizing healthcare resources around the needs of patients. He was a MIT lecturer in health science and technology and is the inaugural recipient of Harvard's Public Health Innovator of the Year Award in 2012. Previously, he served as the clinical director at Sana Mobile at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Trishan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to have you on the show, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about you personally and your journey as a physician entrepreneur. Sure, thanks. So thanks again for having me. I think it's a very interesting time, and I think my story is maybe a little bit more scenic in terms of the route, as I would say, or the route that I've taken again here, and I think the pronunciation gives a little bit away about where I've come from into this world. So I'm... Uh, I'm a primary care physician. I practice medicine, well, about 15 years now, actually. I graduated in 2000. And all of my clinical training and practice was in Britain, in London, where I trained in primary care or general practice, as we call it. And I uh, ran a practice in London in, uh, obviously, a full-risk, fully-capitated environment where we provided care, of course, and also commissioned care from other primary care, intermediate care, and secondary care providers for our population of 10,000, which was in uh, within a federation of uh, practices taking care of uh, 100,000 patients in Northwest London. I came to Harvard to study public health. I think initially I realized I was interested, I was becoming increasingly interested, you know, not just in the individual interactions, which are really great and really fulfilling in their own right, but also I guess in two questions. One is like, all these patients I'm seeing, like, where are they coming from? And, you know, as in what, what's driving the demand for care? And secondly, what was becoming more obvious is that organizing our resources more effectively would itself lead to better patient care in those individual interactions, either through, you know, us being able to focus on the more complex patients because some things are taken care of through better prevention, us being able to use the staff that we have in the practice more effectively, through protocolization and training, and also us having more managerial control of uh, the other providers that we're so dependent upon to manage our patients over time, particularly the more complex ones. So I uh, studied health policy and management. That was a great program. It kind of introduced me to a lot of things that uh, I'd been familiar with and seen in clinical practice, particularly in clinical management, but in, uh, you know, with kind of a very sound theoretical basis. But one group of things that I hadn't really seen too much of and wasn't at all part of my clinical training was the tools of computer science. And I think we're really fortunate here in Boston that we have uh, not a unique confluence, but there's not many places in the world that have such a confluence of world-class clinical delivery organizations. 
as well as world-class computer science institutions and also risk capital. So people who are willing to kind of take a punt or explore early ideas that are formative, you know, and could be large parts of markets that are in the primordial, in a primordial version at the moment. So basically I got involved through a student group uh, at MIT in uh, at what's CISA, which is the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And there I got the chance to work with world-class engineers, many of whom they were students at the time and now like, you know, in senior leadership at Google, Facebook, um, uh, the large consumer technology companies of our day. And we worked on a really simple problem at the time, which is that the Android mobile phone system had become uh, open source. Uh, so this kind of dates it a little bit, of course. It just been uh, released as open source, the source code has been released. Uh, Android, not that many people know, was based, Google acquired it, they didn't make it. Anyway, and we were interested, could we make something based on Android to look at this problem of uh, community healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, primary healthcare workers in developing countries, particularly in peri-urban areas, which basically areas in either around uh, the major cities or in tier, uh, category three or category four uh, cities in middle-income countries where there's massive population growth, uh, massive growth in wealth, increasing expectations both in healthcare and education. And uh, however, still it's difficult to attract and retain skilled healthcare workers. And uh, particularly kind of medical specialists are in relatively short supply. So we were looking at developing an information system to upskill those frontline community healthcare workers, so they could practice at the top of their license, although in many cases these weren't people who were licensed, ironically, but, and they could uh, successfully, accurately, and safely identify people who needed the opinion of an expert and get access to that expert much more quickly. So we basically developed a, which is still going, standard.mit.edu, founded it, and so five years later, we're very proud that it's going on. It's an open source totally free um, uh, technology, which is also uh, now an international research collaborative around it, which is still sensitive at MIT. So uh, we, to cut a long story short with that, but what we look, what we found there is that the kind of technology that works for frontline healthcare work in developing countries and managing chronic disease, I felt very strongly would be exactly the same technology that would work for my patient that I was seeing previously who had chronic disease and I managed them over time. And was a large, growing, ubiquitous problem of patients who have chronic diseases who have to manage them over many years and have to do most of the management themselves, essentially. They have appointments on average. They have about two hours of appointment time. A diabetic, type 2 diabetic, on average, would have, well, the high-acuity ones would have two hours of appointment time every year. The lower-acuity ones would have less than an hour. And in that time, they have to have all of the information given to them. They have to have information collected and based on that other guidance and decisions made and we just felt that that's really been a function of the technology that was available. Basically we could only figure out what patients needed and give them the information they needed to, to manage the care that their care themselves through visits or phone calls arguably or maybe from informational websites or pamphlets and mailers, etc. But with this new set of technologies that we'd had the fortune to develop in this and work on in-depth with world-class engineers in this very low-risk but very pioneering environment, um, I really felt this is something that we could apply to broad swathes of patients, hundreds of millions, 
in this country and um, uh, rising to billions across the world who have these long-term uh, chronic conditions across the physical and mental health spectrum. So it was that, that was essentially the journey. I mean, there's other elements of it, of course. Yeah, that's how I came to be doing what I'm doing now. What an incredible journey, and it seems like you've built something that really has a global impact, which is uh, really inspiring. I'd like to transition in, into into what I'm terming the white coat to business suit. So, you, you know, many physicians want to go into business or, or are interested in business, and I'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about your transition and, and how you've gone in, into Wellframe and, and some of your work even previously to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think, um, uh, you know, I have to qualify this by I don't really have any formal business training. I was very fortunate in my, in my program. I got I got to spend half my uh, time in the Masters at uh, Harvard Business School, and I learned a lot, but I learned a lot specifically really only in the business elements that are germane to health and God. I think for me, what I find, what I feel very strongly actually that I think there's kind of a couple of, a couple of ways of looking at it. One is a somewhat philosophical one, which is, you know, if you don't mind affording me a bit of latitude, it's the way that I would see it is that, you know, I think the things that drive enduring value in society are technical, scientific insight and artistic insight. Now, of course, those are broad terms. I think all the other stuff is kind of mechanism. So the mechanism is totally important because as we've seen with clinical care, you can, you know, you can have amazing ideas and the research evidence, you can even have guidelines, but you need some kind of re-engineering of the incentive structure and management of human and physical resources in order to get the care to people that need it. And so I think in, in that regard, the tools of business are another part of the toolkit that clinicians, particularly, well, I mean, not all clinicians, of, of course, because I think, you know, the traditional focus on biomedical research or kind of direct leadership of clinical service provision, of course, there's, you know, that, that is the mainstay of, of medicine. But I think it's gone from something that people who are interested in these things would have to leave medicine to do in, into something that's much more, um, you know, part of a more, not, not say traditional, but a more accepted or normal uh, career path. And I feel also that I think clinicians can add unique value, particularly in this area, which I guess is our, my area now of technology creation, I suppose, or of using computer science and design to develop products to help patients or improve efficiencies in healthcare. And I see this broadly as a tool of quality improvement, just like other tools of quality improvement, I see that what you look at are workflows in clinical practice and you look to re-engineer those and you look to do so in a logical and empirical fashion and to show that the re-engineered workflow is better, has, you know, a better success, lower complication rates, et cetera, than the, than the status quo. So I think in that regard, there are a lot of specific kind of techniques which could be called management techniques or business techniques or in engineering techniques that are associated with doing that, but the real, the key is context and both understanding the context in which you're developing a solution and uh, then also the context in which it's going to be implemented. And specifically, I think where clinicians can add a lot, uh, you know, I would say, I don't know if it's controversial, but, you know, we've had the fortune here of working with really world-class engineers um, at Wellframe, you know, we have uh, 15 engineers working here and they're all from either MIT or from uh, Blue Chip or large kind of technology companies, Google and uh, Pinterest, Apple, 
etc. But it's we I feel fairly strongly actually that like I think as a clinician the what you should be really good at if you want to work in this environment is in understanding the context and creating a technical and design specification uh that takes what is important to clinicians and important to patients and important to systems and uh, into health systems, sorry, and puts it into a, turns it into a computationally tractable problem and develops specification. So the engineers who are really good at doing those things of engineering, whatever those things are, if you discuss that, um, uh, uh, and designers can uh, work on what they're best at and build something that matters. And the clinician's role, I think, therefore, then is to give them quality control and feedback uh, around uh, to make sure they're on the right track and then also to work with other clinicians to implement these technologies and get them working in practice to the service of patients. So, you know, I think it's a, hell of, it's a really interesting time. I think, you know, we've seen the tools of computer science, you know, the whole Silicon Valley kind of um, rubric that software will eat the world really kind of taking root in a lot of other areas of the economy and so inevitably, well, maybe not inevitably, so it should happen in medicine. I think for that to happen requires uh, clinicians to take a leadership role in this innovation area that you're very much fostering and promoting. So, you know, I'm uh, very grateful to be uh, associated with that in this podcast. Thank you so much. That was incredible. It's, uh, it is so important, I think, for physicians to take that leadership role and, you know, the design and the product and, you know, in the, in the translating piece. And then as to your point, you know, get that, uh, get that additional toolkit, I think is important. So the, the next part is what I'm terming idea to venture. And I know you've touched on, you know, the, the vision for, for Wellframe, but I'd love for you to kind of expand on that and, and tell me how, how it got started and, and what's your big vision for the future. Sure. Thanks, Ray. That's, that's, um, that's a great question. So uh, in terms of how it got started, I mean, I touched on, on, on some of this earlier. So, you know, this came out of uh, a couple of strands, actually. One uh, strand is Jake Sattelmeyer, my co-founder and CEO, who's doing his uh, PhD at HSBH at the um, same time as I was there. And we were friends. He later went on to become uh, one of the product managers at Runkeeper. He was uh, looking at optimizing a consumer fitness solution and really felt that, like, a lot of the problems that he'd gone to do his PhD in Epi to work on solving, and his PhD worked within uh, cardiovascular health promotion, so, um, basically cardiovascular secondary promotion, um, cardiovascular health promotion for people with uh, ischemic heart disease and uh, with strokes. And he was kind of uh, feeling that these, these tools were very useful, but the people that were using them were not the people that were most interesting from the public health standpoint necessarily. And, uh, you know, I'd had the experiences that I uh, mentioned earlier in clinical medicine, and then Archer and Vinny, our other two co-founders, were both uh, undergrads in computer science at MIT and uh, uh, also were, you know, kind of uh, the world's premier computer science program. And they were interested in using their skills really at, at the areas where, like, the cutting edge of science, I mean, really in the area of invention, you know, like, I think it's as simple as that, rather than basically making another social network or uh, something, another version of something else that already exists that would have some, like, frothy appeal, but then, you know, kind of uh, it's debatable how much the longer-term or wider impact of, of such things are. They were really interested in working on something that was combined kind of scientific or technical uh, uh, invention and had some kind of social purpose. So the four of us came together in that way, and we were really fortunate in the MIT environment gave us 
uh, the space and the resources to kind of get started. And uh, we're eternally grateful for that. Where we've now, there's now 30 of us, we're really fortunate to have raised the necessary kind of resources to make that possible. We've done chemical trials with some actually medical centers here, with Brigham Women's, South Shore, and the same with the Boston, and we're doing larger payer deployments at the moment on a regional basis, as well as some work with pharma across the US and the UK. And, uh, we, um, we now have the 30 people working with us, uh, Elaine Goodman and I run the clinical side of what we do, and we're really, we are really passionate and incredibly fortunate to be in this area where we can work kind of hand in glove with computer scientists and designers to look at what we see as really prevalent and important healthcare problems, the issues around the coordination of care, particularly uh, for patients with chronic disease and complex chronic diseases. And, you know, to kind of uh, extrapolate uh, where we're already seeing impact and we really want uh, our building tools is going, and we're building some kind of core technology at the moment. And uh, really, what we're looking to achieve is this, right? So, for an individual patient, based on uh, whatever their disease or their combination of diseases, they every single day know what they need to do and need to look out for to be doing the best they can to make the most of their health and the and, and the resources available to them. And they should have that on a on in some way that is appealing to them. So we believe, you know, uh, a multimedia uh, checklist uh, dynamically generated in any language, uh, at the moment it's in English and Spanish, on uh, any uh, smart iOS or Android smartphone or tablet. And then not just that, because that still is then going through it by themselves, but they get daily feedback on what they're doing such that they um, feel that what they're doing matters, that the relationship that they have with people who they may meet in the clinic or in a care management context is transferred over into the application, which itself we found really powerfully drives our engagement, uh, really through driving meaning, uh, as I was uh, mentioning earlier. Um, and then also from the health system's point of view, because you know where the needs or the risks lie, whether you want to look at coming to a clinical or kind of actuarial lens, um, you're able, well, one is able to know where to allocate um, resources. So which patients need which kind of input, and therefore if you have a fixed sum, and there's always going to be, I mean, anyone that says anything different is kind of just, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, 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 it's unrealistic to assume anything but the fact that the demand for healthcare is always in uh, in the future going to outstrip our ability to supply it, particularly if that mechanism of supplying it is synchronous, face-to-face, or pretty synchronous action between two human beings. There needs to be uh, amplifiers of that, and we really believe very profoundly that there's jobs that human beings are good at and there's jobs that um, computers are good at. Um, so it's not a profound insight. We don't believe that this is profound. We just believe it very strongly. So I should maybe qualify that. But, but it's, um, so there's the computer to good at, particularly the wholesale administration and collection of information and then algorithmic inferences based on uh, such information. And there's things computers are horrible at, but human beings are really good at, which are making, uh, decisions, judgments essentially in conditions where there's high levels of uncertainty. Uh, and also in making relationships with other human beings that feel to that other human being that someone else cares. So what we want to do is to try a new technology to 
help human being clinicians, very um, precious trained resources, um, use their time most effectively and efficiently, and also that computers be doing what they're best at in delivering personalized, adaptive uh, instructions, care programs, uh, advice to patients, and based on how they interact with that, inferring the health data, recruiting the resources of the healthcare system to the patient as those needs emerge. Yeah, that's kind of where we see, I mean, already we had implementations of that, and what we're really working on now through to the end of 2015 and going to Q1 of 2016 is doing that at a national scale, but also personalized. So, you know, our vision is that you could have, if you had, say, 10 million patients, they could be on you know, they could be on 10 million different versions of a care program because we've developed a set of technologies that, uh, um, and this is based on five years of work, but uh, our ability to take a care program for uh, an individual disease and customize it for the needs of the patient, both as the patient signs up, but then also as those needs emerge. So you can switch in and switch out modules, excuse me, based on the emergent needs um, of the patient. So we believe that's a really interesting technology problem and it's going to have a huge impact on um, the provision of care and the lives of patients with chronic diseases and that's why there's kind of 30 of us working on making the enabling technology to achieve that and then implementing it in practice over the next year. Incredible vision and uh, it sounds like uh, you have an incredible team as well, you know, executing and, and to your point, scaling, you know, how to take care of patients you know, nationwide, you know, with, with, with customizable plans and, and really engaging them. So one of the things that I'd like to touch on, and, you know, it might be a sensitive topic with, with entrepreneurs, but, you know, I'd love if you were open about this, is that you know, a lot of people are scared of failure. Has there been a time at, at Wellframe where, you know, things didn't go as well as, as you planned or you had to pivot? Or could you share a, a moment, you know, in time that, you know, things were different than what you expected? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that that's not just an entrepreneurship thing. I think there is like definitely a perfectionist kind of streak in the people that are attracted to become doctors. I don't know, I don't think that's exclusive to doctors, of course, but just because I guess we all know a lot of dogs and maybe feel these things ourselves is uh, more, more, more acutely apparent. But I think one thing about this area is that you do develop a bit of a thick skin after time, after some time and even you know, we're really fortunate now in that we have, we get to work with people who we really like and respect to really push us. And I think really unless you're, if you're not feeling that you're kind of really at the edge of your license, so to speak, um, you're not kind of trying hard enough because that really is how, you know, you should be feeling. And that's really what will make it so enjoyable if you learn so much, right? You're just kind of pushing your abilities all the time and that's a really kind of satisfying, but also somewhat precarious sometimes place to be. But I think, you know, in the journey of getting here, and I don't, you know, I, I'm kind of equally fascinated about where this is going to go uh, as, as anyone else, but it's, I mean, in, in, the, in the past of getting here, we've gone through quite a few iterations of the well-frame idea. I mean, we've been fairly consistent now for two years, but... Um, there's a few kind of things I can share. So firstly is when we started doing this with the example that I brought up earlier with Shanna, like we were really hopeful about that and that we were thinking about an approach to doing it whereby we would have this open source technology that would go all around the world and people would use it and it would 
bring down the cost of delivering frontline healthcare in um, developing countries. And we were really fortunate. We won quite a lot of money through kind of innovation challenges and um, social venture grants from some really large and famous foundations. And that was the thing that got me into doing this after graduating because I was like, well, this is cool. Um, I could go and get a real job or I could carry on doing the stuff that I like and get paid to do it. So I thought I'd do that. And um, But that didn't work out in the way that we thought because for two reasons, really. One is that we realized, which we didn't know before, and was somewhat painful realization, but it's still germane. I think it's useful to share for a wider audience as well, which is that, you know, the, the difference with using technology in medicine is that the person with the problem doesn't have the access to the means of production. And if you look at the consumer internet technologies particularly, the person with the problem, particularly a young person, who also, uh, has access to the ability to build software for the problem that they have and people like them have, and then distribute it and then get it to work and then distribute it to millions of people like them, of which there are in the world, uh, very um, at very low marginal costs using the internet. And that's not really something that applies to healthcare, of course, because the people with the most complex problems, the ones that are most interesting from a clinical, public health, and a financial point of view, have no access to technology. And the people who have most access to technology, like the aforementioned kind of classic archetypal hacker, don't have access to the means of production. Uh, sorry, don't have access to these problems, don't have the perspective on what the important problems to solve are. So what they see is fitness and Lots of things that are very important things. I'm not trying to denigrate them, but uh, they're not the most interesting problems from a clinical point of view. And that's a core problem. So what we were getting with the standard technology is that um, uh, what we were finding is that lots of organizations wanted to work with us and saw the potential for technology in their delivery models. And it was free, totally free. And uh, however, like, it still, although all the technology was free and support resources, et cetera, they still needed engineers at their end to um, build a specific instance and maintain it and customize it, even with the support that we were giving them through the grants that we had through the research group at MIT. So that was a lesson that it just wasn't going to scale, and it wasn't going to be something that was financially sustainable purely as a technology organization. SANO itself is pivoted now and is doing a lot of work, um, which I gave the class this year, actually, um, um, uh, in education, basically quality improvement and using technology and healthcare delivery models in a global context. So, so uh, that was one thing. And the second thing is at the same time, I thought, you know, I really would love to do something that was like, you know, there was a startup really, and that's part of our kind of side-side, I suppose, and it's the kind of thing we all hear about. And myself and, um, uh, actually, yeah, I can talk about it. Um, myself and Vijay, who's now a, he's a senior product manager at Google. Um, he was at MIT at the, the time we were in the same lab. We I founded a company and made something uh, called FeverAid, which is like a decision support tool for patients with, sorry, for parents of kids under five with fever, with commonest, as we all know, commonest pediatric acute care uh, complaint. And it was taking kind of uh, decision protocols and all the expensive guidelines and putting it into a decision tree where a patient was asked a question, uh, sorry, a parent was asked a question at the time. Based upon that, um, was able to, um, you know, get advice on what after answering like 10 questions, we would generate a report which was of the same uh, quality as a referral letter from a nurse practitioner 
two A Commission. So it went through a systematic assessment of all of of all of the different uh, red flags, and yellow flags, for um, you know in terms of significant positives, sorry, uh, significant negatives, and uh, ruling out significant positives uh, for uh, assessment of the uh, child or fever. And we put out, we put up on the app store, we put out free, we got quite a few users, um, and we had absolutely no idea how to commercialize it. And we thought, oh yeah, we're going to make a suite of these and work with other clinicians. And we did make another two with um, friends of ours who are full-time clinicians at some of the hospitals here in, in, in Boston. And um, But we never really, you know, we just didn't have any of the core skills to actually turn that from an interesting idea into something that was a business. And I think, you know, the combination of those two things were what really made me realize that, like, it actually, you know, I mean, one of our investors said, actually, one of our feed investors, he said, starting company is easy, but building a business is really hard. And he, that's totally correct. And I think, you know, the first few years of doing this, that was really, well, the first year of leading medicine uh, and doing this full time was, that was really the lesson. And I wish I'd kind of learned it a little bit earlier, but, but, um, but it is what it is. And like, I think, Clinicians, we tend to think in a certain way. We tend to think very kind of expansively and managing for the edge cases, uh, which of course is how we have to think. But the kind of minimum viable product, build, measure, learn, hustling type thing doesn't come as naturally. So I think that's definitely a set of things that uh, I learned early through kind of being able to try this stuff in the academic environment. Um, and then transitioning after leaving MIT and going into doing welfare in full time, I think we went through quite a few different iterations of the idea we started off doing something purely in the consumer health space called One Health Score, which um, we again we got quite a few users. We learned that we could build products together fairly effectively. Um, and however, you know, we realised that again we were not looking. What we had to do was root our kind of efforts in some kind of really discrete clinical need. And so we moved into building the first version of Wellframe, which was a cardiac rehabilitation clinic. And um, there is a really interesting, a long discussion in its own right. So um, I'll kind of, you know, just the headline thing is that cardiac rehab, we have something which is something that everyone who's had a heart attack should be doing because it reduces the possibility of having a um, subsequent heart attack by 25%. It uh, is reimbursed by all the public and private payers, and there is a broad consensus around protocol of delivering cardiac rehab, which is internationally Kind of accepted. However, only, you know, roughly 20% of people go to cardiac rehab, which is totally crazy. So we, uh, were interested then in working with, uh, cardiac rehab clinics to make their offerings more acceptable and bring more patients in and retain them more acutely, uh, no, sorry, more successfully. And we're still really proud that we have patients now who from our first cardiac rehab deployment who are still using the system, which is over two years later. South Shore uh, in Boston, and we've got a chemical trial, we've got another one coming up, and we're working now with lots of different cardiac reactions across the country. But one thing we realized is that, you know, as much as we wanted, it made, and it continues to make a lot of sense for uh, hospitals or risk bearing entities to invest very heavily in cardiac rehabilitation for all patients to go. There's still hugely variable uptake of cardiac rehab, and it's really kind of been the forgotten cousin of cardiology because it doesn't drive revenues on the provider side in any way near the same way as, you know, intervention, particularly kind of angioplasty, et cetera, do. And so therefore the preventive cardiologists are kind of a bit lower in the pecking order 
uh, within academic medical institutions. I don't know. I apologize to anyone who thinks it's a controversial thing to say, but it's, um, you know, if we were building technology just for cardiac rehab, then we were basically tied, our success was tied to the expansion of cardiac rehab, which, although we believe in the long range, there will, because it's such, it's obviously, it's a no-brainer, basically. It should be done, but unfortunately, the way that intensive organizing healthcare just because it is a no-brainer doesn't mean that it's going to be things going to change anytime fast. So um, we then realized that we had to build the technology in a way that it was totally agnostic of whatever the clinical condition was. And, you know, that took us the first kind of uh, six months or so of working on something optimized for cardiac rehab to realize that that's the direction we had to go. And, you know, we've really um, uh, addressed that and it's kind of a lot, it's a much more interesting product where the technology is applicable to any chronic disease or any combination of chronic disease. And that's a much more interesting and attractive offering, both as a technology problem, as, sorry, as a technology solution, as a healthcare solution, and also from a business point of view, because there's many more customers that are, uh, are uh, that, 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 that can potentially be reached and worked with. Um, but that came through this, you know, trying to get something to work in one setting and realize, realizing that it wasn't moving as fast as it would necessarily like. So I think, you know, that experience of like building something quickly, getting it into practice, uh, trying to like push it to the extent of what you're able and just learning from whatever the successes and whatever the failures or challenges are that I think is critical to kind of getting things going forward. And I think, the thing that I've really learned from that is that you don't need to make things, you know, it's really, that's actually critically important to not only to have like big ideas, but to also to have lots of little ideas quickly and build them quickly, to fail quickly or succeed quickly. And all those big ideas add up, sorry, all those little ideas add up over time into a big change. And I think it's really important to have both going on at the same time, because otherwise if you do everything in a software developer would call waterfall, where you spend a lot of time planning and thinking and whatever and, you know, putting time into practice. That that those insights are really important. Um there's an inherent risk in doing that in terms of the world is changing. So you may just spend six months changing that, thinking that's something that's no longer a prevalent problem. But equally those little things that you can do, uh you can kind of learn feel a lot of agency in, in doing it because you can see the impact of your ideas and actions and cumulatively they add up actually probably the same kind of thing as having thought through something perfectly, but your chances of success are much greater because you're making smaller decisions where there's inherently less risk in those decisions and you have more information. It's incredible advice. I, I encourage all our listeners to go back and, and listen to that a few times. You shared so much insight about your story and you know how you iterated and you know the importance of going after small problems. And, and changing quickly and learning. I think it's so important. So I want to transition into our last section called Not Our Typical Hospital Rounds. So these are business rounds. I'm going to ask you a few questions. So the first question is, what is the best advice you've ever received? I would say Jake Sattermeyer, our CEO, who is a rower, uh, Harvard and Oxford rower. And so maybe this comes actually from his coach. And it's, but I think it's really useful, which is stay humble and stay persistent. Stay persistent is a bit anachronistic, of course, because obviously the words kind of mean the same thing, but I think that would be it. Stay humble, stay persistent. That's awesome. So the next question is, you know, a lot of these physician entrepreneurs like yourself um, have daily success habits or things that they do on a consistent basis. 
Do you have something, you know, that you do daily that, that you think you can attribute to some of your success? Yeah, I really have become convinced, incredibly convinced about the benefits of physical activity, like regular I may make me sound a bit like a zealot, but like I really believe it has a huge transformative effect on your your mind day to day. Kind of, I think the whole thing of discipline and training is really important. But I'm thinking even just a, a modest amount, regularly taking time out of your day to kind of focus on your own mental health, really, is ultimately what it is, and then also the connection between you know, how you feel physically and how you feel emotionally and therefore how you're able to concentrate and perform. And I think also just in terms of like getting outside of just um, a purely cognitive reality, which I think is easy to get kind of trapped in in medicine and also in, um, uh, in this area as well. And I found that really incredibly helpful. And I think, you know, ironically, it's, I, I, I spent three years sitting down, essentially like, when we first started doing this, um, uh, just so that we all kind of sit down at a computer and I think, uh, where hospital medicine was, you know, as you kind of alluded to in the question, like rounds and walking around hospital much more and office based care much less so, of course. But, um, really feel that, um, we, we advocate that very strongly for our patients and, uh, I think it's something that in, uh, we try and bring strongly into our culture here and personally I've also felt the benefits of just regular kind of gentle physical activity and the impact that it has on kind of staying calm and being able to stay focused um, for longer. I think that's so important. I'll call that excellent doctor advice. So our last question, I know you've probably touched a little bit on some of the trends, but besides kind of your work, what, what are some of the hot healthcare trends that you're following that you think are really important? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think there's basically three things that are, that are colliding. I think, you know, we've got the confluence of three factors here. Right? One, I think, is, and these are not in order of priorities, really, for the order that I remember them, but one is, I guess, broadly speaking, kind of process science or process standardization, process improvement, really taking hold in medicine. I think really what that, you know, becomes is, you know, the way that I look at that is that, you know, if you look at kind of industry, I suppose, or manufacturing, you take what was done by an artisan and uh, as the science behind that becomes more mature, it gets put into some kind of process and that process can be executed by someone who's less trained than the artisan and increasingly the more mature the process becomes less and less trained. But with uh, at lower cost, with higher levels of quality and lower levels of um, I suppose. So, you know, I, I think you've seen that in, say, you know, manufacturing of, say, cars or something, you know, those, like, coach builders, the car companies were called coach builders because, like, you know, they were just individuals who built these things one after the other and then Henry Ford and da 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 da. And that was, you know, I think if we look at that, you go from artisans to process standardization. And then now modern car making is not that. that it, it's what's called a mass customization approach where you have, like, a common platform and then you have not an infinite number, but a huge number of possibilities of customization around it to fit the needs of the modern customer. And I think you're seeing that happening in, in medicine. I think you have, particularly in chronic disease, there's a lot more consensus and insight for the common chronic diseases in what the right thing to do in terms of managing them is. And we've come to like some process standardization approach and then there is um, uh, some work now to use technology and 
start to bring the instruction closer to the patient and organize it much more as a production system. And that's exactly the way that we look at it. And that's interesting, but the next stage, which is a really interesting technology problem, just as it was in manufacturing, is this mass customization. And that's particularly what we're focusing on at Wildcard, the process standardization and mass customization to help in the production of health outcomes for patients with long-term chronic diseases. So that's one. The second thing is, you know, that is great, but also we have a re-engineering, critically, and from a business point of view, we have a re-engineering of the incentive network here, and that's really afforded by affordable, the Affordable Care Act, accountable care, um, capitation, uh, risk-sharing, whichever set of words, it's all really the same thing, which is that kind of becoming clearer that there's increasing demand, a fixed budget, and therefore the risk is being shifted down from governments and large insurers onto the providers of care and you know, to be in some situations onto the patients themselves. And of course, there's issues with equity and the regressive effects there, but I think that's um, a separate discussion. But I see that, that, that as that risk is shifting, there's a change, sorry, there's a change in incentives for different actors and more of a case around looking at these long-term conditions. And the second thing, and the third thing is purely technology, I think. So, so I think, you know, we, we, uh, we have like uh, process science on the medical side. Then we have the increasing capitation or accounting uh, or the, essentially the effects and the philosophies of the Affordable Care Act on the payer side. And then I think on the technology side, you know, I think you're really seeing like emergence or ubiquity of a mobile internet, uh, emergency ubiquity of mobile devices are kind of think of. We were just speaking to a partner actually uh, two days ago who's a new entrant into the U.S. mobile uh, market that's one of the largest providers in Europe and Asia. And they ha- are able to provide uh, Android devices that uh, for smartphones, 4G, all that stuff for uh, $40. So that's the cost of the handset, which is crazily cheap. And, you know, the, the price of these devices is falling, of course. You then also have the falling cost of batteries and wireless connectivity near, uh, near to, or sorry, short range wireless connectivity, which means that many more connected sensors. So I think like the fact that everyone can have a computational device, that computational device is coming together have a very powerful effect. Tristan, that was a truly a brilliant way to think about it and slice, you know, some of the major trends. So, Dr. Trishan Ponch, thank you so much for joining us on The Modern MD. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We wish you all the best on your journey. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, thank you. And, and, um, and also, likewise, I mean, great work uh, with the podcast, and um, I look forward to hearing more episodes as well. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Modern MD. Head to themodernmd.com to get links and recaps of every show and so much more. Dose up and like The Modern MD Facebook page.